Welcome to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection, where Colorado trial lawyers share insights from their latest cases. Join me, Keith Buscelli, as we uncover the stories, strategies, and lessons from recent Colorado trials to help you and your clients achieve justice in the courtroom. The pursuit of justice starts now. All right. Well, welcome everyone back to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection. And I could not be happier to have Ben Flicker and Aaron Hogan here to talk about what is truly an amazing result that they obtained in Denver just a few months ago. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. When I read about this case and the result that you somehow obtained, I was blown away because, correct me if I'm wrong, but your client was sort of drunk as a skunk and got hit by a car as a pedestrian. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Point, uh, point two blood alcohol content. Yeah. <laughs> so before we kind of jump in and talk about the case, Aaron, starting with you, have you always wanted to be a lawyer? How did you come to be a trial lawyer in Denver? I had aspirations as a young person to be an attorney until ninth grade when we had a career day and someone, you know, an attorney in the community came in and told us that you had to go to three years more school. And so then I said, no way. And then it wasn't until after undergrad, I'd been out for two or four years, I can't remember, dead end jobs and uh, had a friend who was taking the LSAT and I learned there was no math on it. And so I said, all right, I'll try this. So it was, I thought I'd be in film, to be honest. I have a fine arts degree in film production. Um, wow. So yeah, never put that to use. <laughs> well, we're kind of actors. I don't know if it's similar or not. Now, where did you grow up? Did you go to college here in Colorado? Yeah, I'm a native. Uh, so oh. um Went to Wheat Ridge High School. I went to CU Boulder for undergrad and then DU for law school. Okay, go Buffs. I was undergrad yes. buff and law school, so I uh, love that. And also, strangely majored in environmental conservation, and yet here I am. <laughs> ben, what about, uh, what about you? Have you always wanted to be a lawyer and knew that coming out the gate? The writing was probably always on the wall for me. My dad was a litigator at the Fricky Law Firm for about 30 years, since 1980, until he retired in 2013 or so. So it was, it was probably always on the, writing on the wall for me, but I didn't want to uh, go into law probably because I saw my dad do it and, you know, just natural rebellion. When I went to college, I went to Colgate University back east. And while I was there, I started off as a mathematical econ major and that Trust me, it didn't work for many different reasons. <laughs> and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I decided on English. I called my dad. I said, I'm going to be an English major. And he says, great, you're going to be a lawyer. I said, absolutely not. <laughs> so he started wondering what I was going to do with that. He tells me, you know, senior year of college, just take the LSATs. You know, it'll follow you around. And I said, there's no chance I'm ever going to be a lawyer. So I didn't do it then. And then I got out, worked for a few years, and then I started thinking about, hey, uh, maybe I do want to go be a lawyer. And <laughs> when I told my dad that, he said, okay, wait a second. We haven't had all the fatherly conversations in our life, but this one we're going to have, and you're going to come work for me for a few years before you decide to go down that path to even see if you want to be in the law. And uh, I mean, my, my background, you know, growing up and everything, I was in acting, um, you know, performed at the DCPA and 
you know, I like to say, and I even tell clients uh, when I meet them that if you've ever seen the movie Chicago, little Ben Flicker saw the uh, razzle dazzle scene with Richard Gere. And I said, that's what I want to do one day, you know, put on the show. And I still try to take some of that into uh, the trial, you know, openings and closings or anything. You know, there's an aspect of we're putting on a show and we got to put on a better show than the other side. And it's got to come across that way. But that's one of the reasons I love litigation is that you get to do that. Yeah, it's fascinating. One thing that I'm noticing we all have in common is we all took gap years off between college and law school. I also took two years off. And so I'm just curious if how that impacts your outlook on this profession. Aaron, I don't know if you think if there's any difference between people that come right out of college and go straight into law school versus sort of having that real world uh, boots on the ground, grinded out type experience. Yeah, definitely. So for me, I I wasn't a really diligent student in undergrad. I was in, in my major, but uh, most of my other classes. And I think having that time, and I, I think I was out four years, having that time to see how things work in the real world and how brutal it can be, I came back really, really focused. You know, I read Scott Perot's 1L and I, I went and uh, DU has a program called Summer Prep. And I think it's primarily for students who are kind of on the borderline, who barely got in. I was so gung-ho. I'm like, can I, can I take this? And they said, sure. So I did Summer Prep and where they teach you how to brief a case. And, and I was... I felt older than than most of my classmates, and I think those of us that had spent a few years um, working before going to law school actually did better. You know, I was, I don't know if you guys called them gunners, but I was a big gunner, and so I knew everybody who was like ranked, uh, ranked ahead of me and, you know, who was close to me, and, and so I think that really helped. And then, and then too, when I went and I worked at the DA's office for uh, about three years, and I think having, being a little older, having a little broader perspective really helped there as well. Yeah. I worked at the DA's office as well, four and a half years. Ben, were you a gunner? What was, uh, what was your experience like? I was going to say, I very much was not a gunner. Uh, I was uh, similar to Aaron in undergrad. Uh, I had a lot of fun and uh, did well, but I, I also felt towards the end of my college experience that I wasn't going to be going to grad school. I wasn't going to be going to law school. So I, you know, I wanted to graduate with a certain number. I think it was a 3.0 or something, but, you know, with even, uh, you know, from the school I came from with the 3.0, no matter how well I did on my LSATs, I, you know, I, I knew I was kind of coming in on the back end to uh, get into some of these schools. I did get into DU, but when I got in there, it was, I don't know, apparent to me that there were much smarter people uh, in the Aaron? class than I Much was. smarter people named yeah. Aaron? <laughs> much smarter uh, than me. Um, no way. I was the nerd who outworked, who outworked everybody. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. Uh, even now, I can't tell you how much I've taken from the CTLA listserv, just, you know, uh, the giants like you or other guys like Cheney or whoever else 
who uh, put stuff out on the listserv and I can use it and try to make it my own. But um, I'm not the uh, brilliant mind like Aaron is who puts all of this together and uh, stacks it all up. I can maybe go uh, take a few uh, cuts and uh, really swing for the fences. But um, I was not a gunner uh, in the slightest. But I will say that taking a few years off, being in that grind. I mean, I, my first job out of college, I was working at CBS4 News uh, as a writer production assistant. And my hours were, you know, 2 a.m. to, you know, 10 a.m. You know, Tuesday through Saturday or Tuesday through Sunday. And, you know, all hours doing all kinds of crazy things. And it really was a grind. And you start seeing what it takes. And so then when I went back to law school, I had more appreciation for sitting in the class and learning and developing and really thinking more than, you know, uh, like Aaron, I love my uh, major of English and I loved history classes, but I could care less about almost everything else that I took in undergrad. And, you know, I had a couple friends who had the mentality of D for diploma. And, you know, I kind of uh, joined along in a couple of those classes. I mean, I took, when I studied abroad, everything was pass fail because I was like, I don't really, I'm here for the experience. But taking the time off, working, getting back into law school, I actually did notice that the students who did that appreciated it and more often than not did better than the kids who came right out of college. Um, But then again, there were some uh, whiz genius kids who are probably judges right now, uh, (laughs) which I'm not uh, angling for either that I'm sure did great. But just having that appreciation for, you know, what you're going to be doing in the real world and what the daily grind is helps you because law school is a daily grind in itself. And studying for that bar exam is a grind if you want to pass it. For sure. Well, that is a perfect segue into this case. So tell us, Aaron, tell us a little bit about the case, the backstory. And of course, the most fascinating case is when did you let Ben know he's going to do this case with you? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'll I'll save that. So this case, when it was handed to me, I remember the managing attorney, I think, telling me, oh, this is a really good one. You know, he was hit in a crosswalk. Um, And then (laughs) when I dug in, what I learned was, well, he landed in the crosswalk And nobody had any idea at the time, you know, where he was actually hit. Um, So our client was at work, long day at work, learned that he might be getting a promotion. His boss um, learned that he had gotten a promotion. So they went out uh, after work, had some drinks. Our client, Stephen, didn't didn't drink much at the time. And so had way too much and kind of got lost on his way home. I know it well. I know that area very, very well. So he's going across towards all those lofts that are over there. Yes. Okay. Towards Elegis. No, away from it. Got it. Got it. Yes, exactly. At first, everybody, you know, I think the the prevailing theory was that he was crossing from, I guess it would be west to east. But after a few phone calls to some of the eyewitnesses, I realized, or I learned, he was actually crossing um, from the downtown side or the east, west towards Illiches. So he had crossed all three or four lanes of Spear going northbound and uh, made it across a full lane of the of the south eastbound traffic um, and almost made it all the way across of this um, catering van 
before he was hit on the front passenger side um, and and thrown across two lanes of traffic into the into the crosswalk that ran Got it. parallel. Now, to did here. you did the catering truck run a red light? <laughs> we still don't know. <laughs> um, pro- probably not. Probably not. We did um, what the police were able to get um, because the van left the scene was oh. halo footage. So we had halo footage from the camera at I-25 and Spear and then at Choppers, which was the intersection right after Elid Circle where he was hit. And so I got lucky and we got a great engineering expert to help us kind of piece it all together. So backing up, what could you see on the halo footage? Could you tell what color the lights were? Did your guy have a walking man, no walking man? What was going on? So there wasn't, there wasn't a camera at that intersection. So we just saw the van pulling a big trailer, um, kind of pass under both intersections. You could tell looking at the first uh, set of footage that his passenger front light was intact. And then after passing through, or once he got through choppers, you could see that the light was now shining to just to the right and the casing of the headlight. Yeah, it was dangling off. And there were a couple other halo footage. So he was going to the Denver Center for Performing Arts for a Penn and Teller show. And so there were some cameras there. Those cameras caught him getting out of uh, his vehicle, walking about 10 steps, turning, looking, seeing the dangling head, headlight, going back and putting it back into the casing. Wow. So did you have witness? I'm still stuck on the liability piece here. Did you have witnesses that said what was going on? Or There were a bunch of 911 callers. There was one from uh, a gentleman who was uh, on the balcony of his apartment with his partner having dinner or after dinner drinks. Um, so looking out, they could see the intersection. Then there were, I want to say three. Those lofts you were just referencing, they were in those lofts across the Platte River and that little area. But yeah, sitting right up there on the balcony. So I just have to jump in because this is fa- I had one of those lofts. And that's why I looked at the, my loft looked straight at the Pepsi Center when it was the Pepsi Center. Mm-hmm. So like I, I used to walk across that street to go to Ulich's with my kids and everything. Like that's why I said, when you told me the intersection, I'm like, I know exactly where this is. So you've got the witnesses and what do they say and they're able to see? Uh, so <laughs> one of the, the one who's on his, uh, yes, on, on the loft balcony is saying, oh, there's a guy and he's, he was hanging on a tree and, and he, you know, we, we watched him walk, uh, walk, try to cross spear and what uh, a car going northbound, you know, swerved and, and barely missed him. And then, you know, we think he got hit by a, a car going uh, southbound on Spear and, and he's down and he's crawling through, you know, the street. There are cars honking at him. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, send somebody. And then uh, there were about four other 911 callers who were driving behind the vehicle that hit him, who called it, who saw him lying on the street. One said they thought it was, uh, he thought out his corner of his eye, thought he was rolled up piece of carpet at first and then realized it was a person. 
So, yeah. And then it was one of those people, um, a Lyft driver, who is, her name was Suzanne Geiler. I hope she doesn't mind me giving her a shout out, but she's a real hero <laughs> of this story. She pulled up next to the van, saw that the headlight was broken, told her passenger to help her remember the license plate number. Wow. And it wasn't until like an hour later where she could call it in. And, and that's how they kind of pieced everything together. And I know you mentioned that the defendant was driving home. What time did this happen and what was the lighting like? So it was around just before 9 p.m., I want to say mm-hmm. 8.50 p.m. Um, so it was dark by that time, even though it was, it was mid-August. And uh, yeah, that was a big issue, though, with the headlights. With it, And the, the intersections all along Spirit going downtown are really brightly lit. So, but that was the real issue is because the defendant claimed he, he never saw him. So, which just didn't seem plausible. So uh, yeah, fast forward, the, the license plate number gets called in. The police go talk to this guy. What's, what's his story? Uh, he didn't see a thing. And at the time they were only, uh, the, the officer that went out to interview him or investigate didn't know that he was a suspect. So he just, knew that his van was in the vicinity around the time that this happened. And so he said, you know, did you see anything? I guess, uh, I think his verbatim, he said, uh, I guess a guy got smoked in the intersection. Oh, and, and he was like, no, I didn't see anything. And he was going to, um, to the Penn & Teller show to load up the catering truck and bring all the equipment back. Um, so they caught him after he had unloaded everything back at uh, his his employer's business, which was in Edgewater. I, I got to back up. Who said a guy got smoked, the police officer or the defendant? Police officer. Okay. Okay. It took me a second to, to put those two together. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so nobody had actually, well, we thought no one had actually seen the incident, seen the collision. But I discovered that um, there was an eyewitness and it was the partner of the gentleman who had called 911 from his balcony. And it was only through listening to the 911 audio that I, I heard him reference his partner. He said, oh, you know, my partner had a better VO. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I bet he saw it. And so um, I just called them. And uh, at the time I was working remotely um, on Maui. Turns out that's where they had moved. Wow. So we were like... <laughs> small world. They're like, we don't live in Colorado anymore. Um, we live in Hawaii. I said, of which island? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, a lot of, a lot of weird things happen in this case. And, and now might be a good time to tell, you know, for Ben, Ben's part of the story, uh, the craziest piece, which was Ben was told that he was going to second chair this trial this Saturday before the Monday that the trial started. So about a day and a half before. That's one way to reduce your pretrial anxiety. <laughs> it was somewhat freeing. And it was funny because I, I really didn't know a whole bunch other than you know what Aaron had been telling me of, oh, this deposition was terrible or this is killing us in this case or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm sure everything will work out. Don't worry about a thing. And so then I get pulled in and I'm sitting there on Sunday with Aaron and Steven, the, you know, the plaintiff, our client. And I just sit down. I'm like, so tell me about what happened. And he starts telling me and I'm looking over at Aaron. I'm like, 
how are we going to win this case? Like, what's, like, our guy is stumbling around on a Friday, all in black. You know, again, because again, uh, your, your question of did he run a red light? Um, all the evidence pointed to the fact that uh, our client was walking against the walk signal and against the traffic. And but we kind of used it a little bit uh, to our advantage of. When he was going in the northbound lanes, because you know they wanted to say, how could anybody see this guy? You know, at that time of night, you know, it was impossible. You know, there's no chance we could have seen him. And you know, that was part of what our expert was talking about, saying, no, there's plenty of light to have been able to react in time and to see this guy. And actually, I remember Susan Geller testified. Uh, she was the Uber driver who she was asked, well, if if he was standing up in the middle of that intersection, would you have been able to see him? And she said, oh, absolutely. You know, it's a very bright intersection. Wait, she, she was asked that on cross or in her deposition? No, direct examination. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Aaron put it out there. <laughs> wow. That, talk about walking into a punch. It was just, uh, could you have seen him? And she's like, absolutely. I would have seen him. It's a very bright intersection. And wow. she also was mentioning, she's like, at this time of night, this time of day, you have to be super vigilant, constantly looking at the road in front of you because there are drunk people walking all over the place on a Friday night at this time. So you have to be so careful. And we're like, oh, this is uh, terrific for us. But we also mentioned the fact of when he kind of just stepped out into traffic going you know, northbound, cars swerved around him. Why? Because they saw him. They were paying attention to him. There was this one driver who just obviously wasn't paying attention and didn't see uh, Stephen walking around the middle of that intersection. And he gets hit. And uh, that was also one of the parts of, I believe it was either part of the 911 call or the deposition testimony that got played for trial from the witness. Oh, by the way, the not being able to see him our witness was across Spear, across the Platte River, up on the balcony, and he had been shot in one of his eyes with an arrow. And even he, even this guy said he was able to see Stephen walking around that intersection, you know, at night and dark and everything. But uh, that guy was given testimony. And I think this might have been crucial testimony that when they looked, they basically hear the thud. And they're like, oh, because they saw the, the Stephen walking down the street and they heard him yelling and acting drunk. And they're like, oh, who's this character? And then they see him step out into Spear and they're like, oh, my God, he's going to get hit by a car. And then he makes it to the median. And they thought he had, you know, was going to kind of make it safe. They turn away for a second. And then they heard again, they heard from that far distance, the huge thud. And then they look up. And what they testified to was they look up and they saw the van slow down and then keep going. And so it was that aspect that I think the jury hung their hat on that this guy was fleeing the scene of something he knew. So a question about that, were you able to establish through discovery if his job was going to be on the line, like that's the reason he didn't stay? or And how important was it that he didn't stop and stay at the scene? In other words, could you have won this case had he stopped and said, hey, I'm so sorry I didn't see you? Aaron, what do you think? Absolutely not. I think had he had he stopped, had he stayed, there wouldn't have been a case. I think the biggest factor in in the win, in my opinion, is is that the defendant 
at no point showed any remorse, you know, and it was just, it just wasn't believable that he, you know, maybe you didn't see him, but, you know, we were able to get out. Okay. You didn't see him before you hit him, but this is a 130 pound body that, you know, it's flying, you know, you hit and it's flying through the air and you don't feel the impact. You don't hear it. The people, you know, hundreds of feet away hear it. And he, he called it a, you know, he said maybe it was a glancing blow. He just tried to minimize and, and just even when asked, you know, in hindsight, would you have done anything different? No, wouldn't have done anything different. And I just think the jury wow. was just like, oh, no way. Aaron, it was one of these things where the defendant's direct examination was obviously paired, tight, scripted, everything that you'd expect. Aaron gets up on cross-examination, and it might have been just like the third question or fourth question she asked of, and you've been driving this van since 1992 or 1993, right? And all of a sudden, he's like, he, he got aggressive and defensive. He's like, I never said that. I didn't do this. And so she just impeaches, very calmly impeaches him, like, let's open up the deposition transcript. I asked you this exact question. And did you, that's taken out of context. And he got so defensive and angry that he then carried that anger through the rest of his cross-examination, where it was so clear that this guy didn't care that he had hit our client. And there was just an aloofness to him of, you know what, I gotta be here probably for insurance purposes, but I could care less was his whole demeanor. And I think uh, that, and Steven, our client was, uh, he is a likable guy, um, a a sweetheart of a person, a very uh, soft-spoken type of a person. And uh, the juxtaposition, and Aaron was able to bring that out in just a very simple impeachment on a simple question. So, you know, just asking these simple questions where you have an easy answer to see if the defendant will all of a sudden put up walls, it's helpful. So tell us a little bit about your client's injuries and the verdict, because this is, and the amount of comparative negligence, if any. He was hospitalized, I want to say, for at least seven days. So he took most of the impact on his, um, on his right side. So he uh, broke his femur. It was a comminuted fracture, meaning it was broken in several places. There were pieces of bone fragment you could see in the in the x-rays. So broke his femur right at the hip, broke six ribs, uh, one or two of his ribs, then punctured his chest cavity, his lung, and then collapsed his lung. And then he had, uh, I think, fairly minor um, liver contusion. But, uh, but yeah, he was, he was in rough shape. And, you know, when you break your femur, you've got to have a metal rod shoved into your leg and, and screws. And when they do traction too for it, you know, they've got to put a pin across the bottom of your knee and then hang a weight off of your leg. And so it was, it was, yeah, his injuries were pretty extensive. <laughs> and, and how old was your client? 27. Wow. Okay. And then what did you do? Let's talk a little bit about strategy because I I know, spoiler alert, that you ended up with a pretty amazing impairment award on this case, right? Yeah. 1.1 million, uh, at least for 55% of that. (laughs) Okay. 
So what was your strategy? Because this is seems to be the elusive unicorn we're all hunting for. What was your strategy with how to get the jurors to put the money in the impairment bucket versus pain and suffering bucket? And did you get an impairment instruction? So I, I guess along these lines, uh, there was no, I don't remember any impairment instruction. Um, in terms of arguing it, uh, the way we went about it was uh, Dr. Sonstein was, an, was the IME, uh, plaintiff's IME for us. And he gave us a, an 11% impairment rating. Okay. And their doctor, they got a, their own Rule 35, and it was Dr. Lesnack. And he gave a 0% impairment rating. And uh, so on direct, I basically, for Dr. Sonstein, I, I let him be the expert. I let him be you know, as good as he can be. And that's kind of my approach usually with our own experts that we hire. I mean, look, just like they have uh, defense experts who are trained and have done this a lot. If you get a good one on our side, such as you know Dr. Sonstein, he's done these things before. He knows what needs to be said, how it needs to be said. And I kind of just let him run with things. Now, there were mm-hmm. a couple of times when he's a very slow talking guy. And I was sitting there thinking, oh boy, Jerry's going to fall asleep on this one. And I better prompt him to the next thing to talk about. But he was very, very good. And except there was one moment when Joan asked a question about, you know, well, the straight leg raise doesn't have anything to do with the femur. And, you know, when you think about leg raise and lifting up the leg absolutely has to deal with your femur and the leg and he did one of these where he did like a double take and he's like and he just looked over and goes huh what are you talking about (laughs) and i think um she lost a lot of credibility with the way she cross-examined her our experts but then with dr lesnack I basically just did a nice tight 20, maybe 25 minutes where I just attacked his credibility. Okay. I just attacked, uh, I, you know, he, <laughs> I was saying stuff like, you know, it's, you testified that over 90% of this work is done for the defense. Oh, yes. And, you know, the defense keeps hiring you because you do a really good job, don't you? Well, I would like to think so. And uh, you do a good job at minimizing the damages of victims like my client, Mr. Doig over here, objection, you know, uh, <laughs> argumentative, but, you know, stuff like that. I, I threw out at him, you know, he has an administrative law, he has an administrative law hearing order out against him where the <laughs> the judge said uh, Dr. Lesnack was more concerned with 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 hiding the truth than aiding this tribunal in the search of truth. And I literally just read those, I read those words. It it was right after I was asking him if our client's injuries were permanent. And he's like, well, he could decide to get the rod removed out of the middle of his leg at some point in his life. And I was like, so the metal rod down the middle of his leg and these injuries are not permanent. He's like, well, he, he could decide to do so. And so then I just read the uh, words from that order and obviously brought up a huge objection, but I just attacked his credibility. And it was very clear that the jury didn't believe a word he said, and he, he didn't have any credibility with that jury. And in closing, I just remember Aaron 
generally putting out there, you know, what is the value of a human body, a pristine, brand new, you know, what, what's that value? And she's throwing numbers out there and, um, you know, 10, 20, whatever it is. And the jury, I believe, came back and just put the value of the human body at $10 million and multiplied it by 11%, 1.1 million. So Aaron, did you walk, because I, I have done that before where you sort of take the value of the human and then you depreciate it based upon the age and then apply. Did you go through all of that or did you sort of dumb it down a little bit? And it sounds like that worked to your advantage if they just took 10 million times 11%. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I didn't actually. I will say this. Closing arguments are not uh, my strong suit. And, uh, and I think some people might beg to differ. <laughs> so. it, it wasn't in this case I had a hard time, you know, with, with the time I was, uh, we were using, um, trial consultants to help with AV, Stephen Padley. He was amazing. Uh, and, and I credit whatever success, you know, the closing had to do with our verdict to him putting up visuals behind me as I went way off script or way off our outline. And, and he kind of kept things going behind me, um, but I hadn't left enough time to really go into a, a damages model because we were so focused. I mean, really throughout the whole case, we were really focused on the liability portion. We were going to, you know, win or lose on that. We had to, we had to get that 49%, you know, and that's kind of what I was, what we were going for the whole time. It's like, can we just get 49%? And so I had kind of used too much of my time on on that portion realized uh, I think thanks to Ben who was like hey hey you know you've got five minutes and I was like oh my gosh um, <laughs> start asking for money <laughs> how much well how much time so this is Judge Elif how much time did you get for closing 30, 30. wow that and wow. that time goes by so fast <laughs> I just left it up to them and I think I think because we hammered the liability so hard that was probably it they were gonna find for us and you know, they just took the easiest route because, yeah, I, I didn't go in, into into the timeline. I did it a little bit with the pain and suffering, but yeah, I threw out. I think I threw out a million dollars. So, what's the value of a healthy body? Is it a million? And I told them, I think it's much more than that. Is it ten million? You know, that's for you to decide. You know, what's it worth? Like what? And they picked ten. Clearly, <laughs> um, yeah. And along these lines, let me uh, say something. Uh, and you just mentioned how valuable Stephen and um, you know his, the tech was. Stephen himself has been to a lot of trials and seen a lot of trials. Uh, I know that I'm pretty sure he was the tech guy with uh, um, uh, Kurt Zayner when he got his 16 million dollar verdict against um, Excel. So he he's seen things that work and don't work. And Aaron and I were kicking stuff around. I'm throwing out my ideas. I had even brought up, do the depreciation. We've got 11% and everything. And Stephen was actually the one who was like, this doesn't feel like the right case to do the depreciation model. Um, and he, he said, you know, just throw it out. Just give them a number and give them the, the 11%. And I'll put up on the screen a body with 11% taken off and everything. And his... I would recommend taking, if not him, a tech guy who has experience seeing lots of trials to court every time because one, 
I mean, just the tech. I mean, even us sitting around here doing this, uh, lawyers don't know tech. And it looks, and we don't want to be fumbling around with it. My last trial I just did a few weeks ago, I, you know, we didn't have a tech and I'm trying to figure out how to click through a PowerPoint presentation. These tech guys make it seamless. I mean, and even doing direct examination or cross-examination, I mean, with cross-examination of Lesnack at one point, I'm asking him about his bills and, you know, he's disputing it. And I just turned to Steve. I'm like, hey, can we just put up, you know, that you know, exhibit whatever and boom, it's up. And it's so seamless and wonderful. But his um, knowledge, you know, seeing the case and seeing jury trials. I mean, that's one of the things that we don't get as much practice as we like, but these guys are in there all the time. And we took his uh, advice on multiple fronts. And that was one of them was because I was I was telling there and I was like, you should think about doing it. It's very difficult to do this house depreciation or yeah, you know, whatever yeah. depreciation. It, it's a very difficult thing you do have to practice. But Stephen was saying, he's like, this isn't the right case for that. Just pick a number and let them go with it. And I think the simplicity of it, the difficult part for the jury was getting the liability to 55% on the defendant and 45% on us. And I think once they got past that, the injuries themselves were so objective uh, because, I mean, his, his femur is shattered and he's taken straight to the hospital. So once we, they got past liability, I think they just said, we're past liability, and we like those numbers that Aaron gave us. So two questions. What limitations did he have? So young kid, fractured femur, was he fully functional at trial, or was this something that's impairing his his quality of life? Aaron, what do you think? You're smiling. That's a good question. So Stephen at trial really struggled. He has a lot of um, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So he you could see the toll that just sitting there was taking on him all day. I mean, he was kind of rocking a lot. He, he hyperventilated um, quite a bit. So, um, but we weren't allowed to bring, you know, they filed a motion in limb. They didn't want to bring in anything having to do with his mental health or his history. He had, you know, a, a fairly significant history of, of uh, trauma and, and past abuse. And so they, you know, they didn't want that in. So what we leaned on, Stephen was a a runner and we had to bring it in a little bit. And I think we were fortunate to get some leeway on that, but he would run to relieve his stress and anxiety. And he was really fast. I mean, he would go um, run around Sloan's Lake, and I think he was like at a sub five minute mile. I mean, it's some, it was pretty crazy. He ran everywhere. He ran to work. Ben and I learned on direct of his friend Jamin that they would race each other to work. Um, and so we had a lot of witnesses. You know, we had his friend Jamin, we had his dad, we had his girlfriend, all talking about how important running was and how good he, you know, how good he was at it. And and then he talked about how um, painful his recovery was, that, you know, he had to have help going to the bathroom. He had, you know, had to have, it was hard to just walk down, you know, walk down the street. And and now he can run, he can run, I don't know, maybe a few blocks, but but that's it. Wow. So, so that was, we kind of leaned hard on, on that. 
as far as, as yeah, his, his impairment. And then the pain, um, you know, his lungs as well, uh, his ribs. So broken ribs, you know, when he's breathing deep, he's got to massage his chest a lot and, and it impacts, you know, he can't sit in cars for long periods of time. So we, we drew that out a lot with, with our other uh, fact witnesses, his friends and family. So the total verdict was how much? And then were there any, what were the settlement offers before trial? So 2.6 or 55% of 2.6, which I think came to 1.4 something. something. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, we got a stat offer uh, following mediation a few weeks before trial for $200,000. Wow. Okay. We actually came back, um, our last demand, I believe was $750,000. So, Mm. I mean, those are, those are very tough facts and, you know, even turning down the 200 good for you guys. I mean, there, a lot of people would not have done that. I mean, that is, you have somebody in dark clothes, drunk as a skunk going against traffic. Those are tough facts. Mm -hmm. So now tell me a little bit about, so this is judge LF. Is that right? That's right. And what was your overall experience of Judge Eliff? I thought it was a pretty positive experience. I had some difficulties during the trial, and, and thank God for Ben to be there to, to calm me down. It was a, it was a contentious trial. I, for the most part, I get along with opposing counsel. I'd much rather have a cooperative, cordial relationship than a combative one, but that unfortunately just wasn't the case. It was pretty brutal all the way through. We couldn't, um, you know, they wouldn't stipulate to any exhibits and, and um, kind of brought up uh, re-argued objections to things over and over. You know, they tried to keep out um, late witness, the Uber driver's testimony that if he would have been standing up, she would have been able to see him. You know, they argued that, gosh, like five times. So the judge was pretty angry by the, um, midway through trial, and and I think he had to direct his ire at, at all parties, and I was stressed and a little sensitive, and because I felt like, well, hey, I, I'd, I'd cooperate, you know, we'll stipulate, we're stipulating to, to everything they ask us, we're not the bad guys, but I thought he was he was pretty great um, all the way through. I think he made not everything went our way. I think. That, that should have, but no complaints for the most part. And did you have, as you're telling me about the case, I'm sort of thinking about voir dire. What was your sort of strategy and plan going into voir dire with all these difficult facts? To really hammer that comparative fault issue. So, and we posed it as, gosh, I'm trying to think about the, the analogy I eventually got in. Uh, the, the analogy that you used was, if uh, someone is walking through a construction zone or walking up to a construction zone and they don't see the uh, signs that say construction zone, don't walk here, but they start to walk through the construction zone anyways. And then as they're walking, one of the construction workers through his own negligence drops a beam and it falls on the uh, person's head. 
who's responsible? The person who shouldn't have been there in the first place or the person who dropped the beam on the head? And that was wow. the analogy that Aaron used. And I thought it was terrific. I, we obviously got rid of uh, or kicked people off that weren't going to be helpful along those lines because there were a lot of people who just said, if you shouldn't have been walking there, then that is totally your fault. It's brilliant. I love that analogy because it's just tightens all of the issues in your case sort of in one thing. That is, uh, that's very, very effective. I love that. And we used, um, you know, I said on a scale of one to 10, where would you place yourself? One being, you know, I would absolutely sue. 10 being, I would never sue. You know, where do you fall on that spectrum to try to get conversation going? And that took up the majority of of voir dire again, working on you, better using my time and, and going quickly. But but yeah, I think it, it worked out. Um, and one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet, one of our jurors is actually uh, a workers' comp legal assistant who had worked with Dr. Lesnack before. There was some debate on the team. Do we keep her? Do we not? We ended up keeping her. And and I think she was probably one of our best jurors. She, she gave me a lot of uh, confidence. She was uh, smiling. She, my, my paralegal said, oh, she loves you, which I don't know if that was actually true, but it, it, it you know, it really helps, it helps keep my confidence up as, <laughs> as we were going through the trial. So tell me a little bit about uh, the, the panel. What kind of jurors did you have and what, in terms of who to select from? Because I, I always am fascinated by the difference between Denver, Jeffco, Boulder. So I'm curious, you know, what were the 15 people like that they took in that you ultimately had to choose from? And then what did your, did you guys have six plus an alternate? How did that work out? So from what I remember here, it was a very diverse jury pool. Lots of uh, different races, ages, educational backgrounds, which is in, you know, I just went to a trial a few weeks ago in Boulder where Every single person seemed to be highly educated, multiple degrees, and white. Uh, you know, that was pretty much everybody in the pool, everybody in the courtroom. But in, in this one, it was very diverse. And even who was left on our jury, I remember we had a young black man who was sitting right between the woman that uh, Aaron's talking about and an older gentleman who had, it was interestingly enough that he was the very last person to be brought into the jury panel based off of, you know, we did, there were quite a few challenges for cause uh, that I thought he lifted an excellent job of being very even handed with that. But this guy was the very last one. And he had just a year before had an insurance claim against him for a ski accident and he based and it was one of these where i guess he's like "Eh, i might have run into somebody and you know he wanted my insurance i got called by my insurance i got called by a plaintiff's attorney and nothing ever really happened from it and there was a lot of debate of whether or not we should have kept him on or or not and i think the ultimate decision between us was the guy knows that insurance is going to be handling everything and we're going to be asking for big numbers and he doesn't seem to hate plaintiff's attorneys from it. He might even have an idea of, hey, maybe the attorneys looked at it and thought that there's nothing there. So uh, there are good plaintiff's attorneys who aren't just trying to uh, be greedy. But whatever the case was, he was in terms of the just general jury pool as diverse in age and race and background as you would expect in Denver. 
What I love about what you just said about that particular juror is so many times when you first look at someone, you might think that they're going to fit into a certain box, but then you dive a little bit deeper, like you were just talking about with that particular juror, and they turn out to be not bad for you. Um, so that that's very, very fascinating. Yeah. And along those lines, you were asking about alternates or anything. Uh, there was no alternate. So we were left with six. And then right after jury selection, we come back. And one of the jurors, the, uh, one of the pictures who, I don't think she said a single thing during Voidier. One of those, like, you just don't know who she is, but she got picked because she didn't say anything. <laughs> she yeah. wound, the judge brought us up and said, this juror is having panic attacks about having <sighs> to sit on a jury. I'd like to excuse her. So we moved forward with a jury of five. And I love that. I have been trying recently to get an agreement from defense counsel to do that. Because first of all, I think it's just mean to make an alternate sit there and then not deliberate. And so I love the idea of six. If you lose one, you go with five. But so far, it, I've had defense attorneys agree to it. And sometimes they don't. Um, last trial that we just did was uh, six. But no, if we would have lost one, I, we might have had a mistrial. So it's uh, it's kind of fascinating. Wow, what a great story. So where are you at now with getting paid on that verdict, the insurance coverage, et cetera? Um, where, where do things stand? So we've gotten orders on our bill of costs and our defense's post-trial motions. Those were denied. And we received an offer from auto, auto owners, I guess, uh, they hired another attorney for $700,000, which was promptly rejected by, by Mr. Doig. And then we demanded the full judgment, I think, but no, um, we gave him a break on post-judgment interest. So, which now, by now is like probably 8000 something maybe closer to $9,000. So Stephen does not want to, does not want to settle. He, he doesn't want to, he's still got a lot of anger and a lot of, um, and rightly so. I mean, he, he had to watch the defendant at his criminal trial um, cry and plead and get a really, um, a really lenient sentence and then come to the civil trial, our trial, and then act like he didn't care at all. And so that was, that was pretty brutal. So he's not really interested at this point in settling and is willing to go the distance if they appeal. And it's looking like that could be a possibility. I just don't, I don't see any, yeah, viable and that viable issues for appeal. I mean, that was the great thing about Judge Ellis, right? He, sure. Yeah. He was very even-handed. They got a lot of good rulings in their favor. And so um, I, I think it'll be a tough road for them. I'm, fingers crossed that that they that they, they just agree to, to cut a check, but I don't know. It's, what was the uh, – how much was the policy? Was it a million? It was a million-dollar policy, yeah. Okay. Fascinating, fascinating. And did you get to talk to the jurors afterwards? We did not. I wish that we would have had the opportunity, but they hightailed it out of there. It was Friday afternoon, but, you know, in most most juries, I, I, I mean, I've done about 60 jury trials and, and I try to talk to all of them. I've never seen a jury leave so quickly. <laughs> so we, did, we didn't really know what to make of that. I keep trying to spot the foreman actually lived in, in the same apartments where the witnesses saw, so where you used to live, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. over off Little Raven or close to there. 
Um, so my my partner lives over there. So I, when we're walking out walking the dog, I try to look for for this juror to see maybe I can spot him and I, you know ask him a question or two. But no, they just bailed. Wow! And right out the door, the judge said, "If you'd like to stick around, uh, or if you want to wait in the back uh, with the jury in the jury room." They had all brought all of their stuff out to the jury box. And the second they didn't go back to the jury room or anything, they all went straight out that door and scattered. Um, wow. there, there was no chance to speak with a single one. I wish they would have because some of the stuff we're talking about with you know what worked in closing, obviously a lot worked in closing and Aaron did a phenomenal job because uh, uh, they awarded exact, they awarded exactly what Aaron asked. So obviously, uh, she did a phenomenal job in it. But it would have been nice to hear. Well, why? Why'd you come? Why'd you uh, ask? Why'd you award exactly? uh, Or how'd you decide these numbers? And it very well could have just, in the end, been they spent so much time beating each other up on liability that when they got to damages, they just said, "We agree with uh, what Aaron said. The damages are." Wow. One of the things I love about doing these podcasts is I am so inspired by your story, by what you all did with taking that case to trial, by your strategy. I love trying cases in Denver, honestly. I just, so the courthouse, it just feels so nostalgic. It's convenient. Everything about Denver, the jury pool, I find to be really great. And uh, I just am so happy for you both and for your client and hopefully your client gets paid on this soon and uh, can move on with his life. So Ben, Aaron, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you both for coming on the show. And I cannot wait to hear about the next one. So Ben, you already said you already had another trial. So is that like back-to-back trials? Sure. Yeah. My last two trials have been uh, this one and then uh, the one up in Boulder. So a couple of wins, uh, you know, the one I just did, with costs and interest, just over six hundred thousand. So, uh, wow! You know, I'll just try to keep. Maybe, maybe it uh, has helped with a couple settlements I've gotten recently, um, where they they say that they know I'm coming. He's in high demand. Uh, I I just I couldn't sing his praises loud enough after this trial coming in, you know, on a moment's notice and just just crushing it and and it was it was really fun. We had we had a fun time. I think. It was such a team effort. I mean, he's he's being way too generous with his compliments to me, but it, it was just, it was my paralegal, Katie Levis, our, our legal assistant, Taylor Cody, and Stephen Padley and, and our experts. You know, it was fun. It was it was tough, and but it was a really fun one, yeah. We got lucky. <laughs> I was thinking that same thing to myself as you were telling the story. I'm like, this just sounds like a fun trial from the witness and everything about the case seemed fun. And so uh, maybe that's why I feel so inspired. Well, thank you both for appearing on the program. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck moving forward. So with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection. And what I love about doing this and speaking to Ben and Aaron is you just go out there. And when you go up to it's so much work and it's so hard. But then when things come together like they did for you all and Ben, your trial you did since then, it's just so rewarding and it's such a privilege to get to do what we do. So thank you both. And with that, until next time, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. 
We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration from today's courtroom warriors. And thank you for being in the arena. Make sure to subscribe and join us next time as we continue to dissect real cases and learn from Colorado's top trial lawyers. Our mission is to empower our legal community, helping us to become better trial lawyers to effectively represent our clients. Keep your connection to Colorado's best trial lawyers alive at www.thectlc.com.